0: is about caloric expenditures or expenses. Our body requires energy, and that energy is used in the following way. First of all, we need energy for the basic functions of all these metabolic functions, chemical reactions, Movement, uh, metabolism for the muscles, etc. And that is what we call BMR, or based on metabolic rate, which counts for about 60% of the expenses in calories. Then we have adaptive thermogenesis, energy that we need to adjust to changes in the temperature around us. That counts about 10%, depending on the temperature, of course. And finally, the physical activity which is highly variable. And actually this is the one that we manage a lot in order to keep the balance. If we don't perform any physical activity, we're not expending, And if we do a lot of physical activity, it means that we need more energy in terms of food, bringing all this amount of energy. So this is a balance that we have to keep all the time to keep the body weight, the intake and the expenses in terms of energy, food against all the activities and, com- and components of the metabolism that require energy. The basal metabolic rate is a very standard amount depending on our body weight, depending on our physiology, and it's very different in, in each person. Uh, although there are standards by age, by sex, by physiological condition, adaptive thermogenesis, and physical activity. So we can manage this very well with balancing what we eat and what we consume in, time, in terms of energy. It's basically physical activity. That's one of the most important things that is included in the recommendations for keeping the body weight. And again, this balance between anabolism and catabolism is what keep the balance in terms of functions of all the cells. And in terms of nutrients, we see here the basic nutrients that we utilize, glucose, fatty acids, and amino acids. If we need to use these elements, we use them them right away. And if we don't need to use them, we will store that in terms of glycogen, triglycerides, and proteins, which can be broken down in the the step of catabolism. So this is like a cycle all the time. We are getting all these nutrients, we reduce it by the digestive system into the basic three: glucose, fatty acids, amino acids, and then we store them as glycogen, triglycerides, proteins. When we need them, then we can get all those, or we can use all those uh, elements that have been stored. And that's a good thing because we need sometimes. Uh, there are periods at which we need more, and we don't. We're not actually getting from the diet, and we need to have all these stored in our body. And in the lower part of the graph, we see regulators, hormones, substances that will regulate all these mechanisms in the metabolism, like insulin, sex steroids, growth hormone, thyroxine, which are uh, part of the endocrine system. That will be used in anabolism state. And in catabolism state, the other components of hormones, glucagon, epinephrine, glucocorticoids, growth hormone, thyroxine, will also be included here. So, there's a fine regulation that includes insulin, glucagon, sex steroids, epinephrine, adrenal gland, thyro gland, endocrine system. Let's start with the pancreas and insulin and glucagon, which are the most important hormones. These are the products of the pancreatic islets, endocrine pancreas. Insulin, glucagon, beta cells, insulin, alpha cells, glucagon, delta cells, somastostatin. The insulin is one of the main hormones that regulate the glucose levels. That's the main function of this hormone. And glucagon is the opposite It has opposite action to insulin. And the point is to keep enough glucose for vital organs like the brain. The brain utilizes only glucose and levels must be maintained very constant. How the insulin is produced is regulated by the amount of glucose and amino acids that we have in the blood. Those levels are detected by the pancreas cell. And if there is too much glucose in the circulation, insulin will be made in order to keep this level in between 65 or 70 and one or five milligrams per deciliter in fasting conditions. Or after taking a meal, it may increase up to 140, 150, and it has to go back to basal levels after two or three hours after meals. That is the point about the insulin. It regulates and makes sure that the glucose levels are at that point all the time how the insulin works, I think we mentioned that before, it makes the glucose, uh, brings the glucose inside the cell, removing the excess of glucose from the blood. That's why the glucose, after a meal, the glucose in the blood goes high, but then it goes lower because all that glucose has been transported into the cells for being used. And how about the glucagon? The glucagon is the opposite. It has opposite action. After we eat a meal rich in carbohydrates, glucagon is not released. Glucagon is not needed because the glucagon glucagon is released when the glucose levels fall. It's the opposite. Glucose levels go high, insulin is produced. Glucose levels go down, the glucagon is produced. It has the opposite effect. If the insulin removes the excess of glucose from the blood, the glucagon releases glucose to the blood. And thanks to this, is that in um, during fasting conditions our glucose levels go lower, but they don't get too low, like to zero or ten or twenty. It may get very low, yes, but still. 60, sometimes 50, it's extreme, but the glucagon makes sure that the level won't go lower than that. So, so when a person with diabetes, it's like a, it's really like it's shaking you know, it's around 60. Uh-huh. Uh, and for example, you know, they haven't eaten anything, it's where glucagon kicks in? Exactly. The glucagon guarantees that you have glucose in your blood. It won't go down to zero. It will stay, it will, there will be glucose, because your brain needs a glucose. And that is uh, the point of the glucagon release. And another other actions of glucagon, we can say that uh, the main action is conversion of glycogen to glucose. That happens in the liver. And that's why the glucose is released and is always in the blood. Although, if the glycogen stores uh, really low, then also the glucose levels will go really low, but it won't reach extreme dangerous levels, um, like going back or going down to zero. And there is no glucose taken by cells like skeletal muscles, liver, and adipose tissue. The glucose is needed in the blood, not in the cells. At that moment, and also release fatty acids from adipose tissue. Just a backup. Energy is needed, so if not enough glucose, fatty acids are released, so they can be used as energy. Glucagon is a a substance that guarantees that your cells receive energy and glucose whenever is um, uh, enough stores. Nervous system also participates in this, autonomic nervous system, sympathetic, parasympathetic, the parasympathetic, has a rest and digest division, is activated during um, uh, the digestive process and it stimulates the release of, ins- of insulin. And of course, opposite to parasympathetic, the sympathetic inhibits insulin secretion and instead it stimulates glucagon secretion. As a reason why we have this, sometimes we see this, stress hyperglycemia. Sometimes we see it in people with diabetes that when they are challenged by something like, sometimes it's a very strong situation, emotional situation that increases the release of sympathetic uh, or activation of sympathetic division, the insulin is inhibited. There's no insulin, so the glucose will go higher. Glucagon is released. More glucose is released. And that's called stress hyperglycemia. By stimulation of the sympathetic division. This is sometimes lots of people are diagnosed with diabetes because under these situations, right? Because they didn't know it and once they start feeling the symptoms about a stressful situation in their life, that's what they have. That is right. Sometimes it's known as emotional diabetes. Because, but but it's not a diagnosis. There's no disease as emotional diabetes. It's just a situation, stress hyperglycemia that may occur. And yeah, people with diabetes may have that. But anyone can have that when we face some challenge. But of course, it has to be correct. Has to be corrected quickly by the uh, uh, insulin and glucagon. But if they are, if they do have diabetes, then it's diagnosed as just diabetes. Right? Yeah, yeah, it has to be um, diagnosed as diabetes, making other tests and things. So the insulin and glucagon they work on different stages. What we call absorptive state and post-absorptive state. Uh, during an absorptive state, that means when we just ate and all these nutrients are being digested and absorbed, skeletal muscles will be getting all this um, effect of the insulin, getting the glucose inside. Um, and the muscles will use the glucose and also make some glycogen out of that glucose. So, later on, it will be utilize if needed. Amino acids are taken also. And the excess of glucose will be taken by the liver for formation of glycogen for further storage also. That happens in the absorptive stage where so we just ate and all the glucose is flooding our blood. Insulin will start working getting all that glucose into the cells and the excess turned into glycogen uh, kept as stored our glycogen. And a positive sortive is when we're not eating. And those times that we're not eating, like fasting, plasma glucose levels will remain constant because glucose is coming from the liver. That's the effect of the glucagon glucagon stimulates glycogenolysis, which means destruction or breaking down of glycogen into glucose. Gluconeogenesis may happen. If needed, new glucose, I mean glucose from other molecules, fatty, uh, fatty acids or amino acids, can be made under the action of glucagon. And the skeletal muscle, heart, liver, will use free fatty acid acids in order to spare glucose for the brain. During that state of post-absorbed, when the insulin is low and the glucagon is high. I'm sorry, so the free fatty acids are the regular fatty acids? Yeah, free oh. fatty, so fatty acids they- that come from triglycerides um, um, metabolism, they are used as energy. And so in post absorptive when glucose is needed for the brain and the skeletal muscles, the heart, they will switch to use more fatty acids instead of glucose to spare glucose for the brain. So why did they add the word free here? Because they are free from the proteins that transport all these triglycerides. The glucagon and the fat relationship is described here stimulates the lipase in adipose tissue. So the triglycerides are turned into fatty acids and the fatty acids will be released to the blood and used as energy. And in the liver, these fatty acids will be turned as ketone bodies that can also be used as an energy source. All this happens during the periods that we are not eating, we're not getting any food. Um, And we can see this in people that are starving or not eating for a long time. We see that they are are using more fatty acids and that's how they lose weight. They're not eating, they are consuming a lot of fatty acids. But also, ketone bodies are made by the liver and the ketone bodies can be detected in the urine with a dipstick reagent strip. That's how we know that someone is making a hunger strike, for instance. You know, these people that are on hunger strike, they go and be checked by doctors and nurses and having tests. Well, they make sure that they are okay first, but one of the things they do is they a urinalysis, and they find ket. we're supposed to find ketone bodies. I mean, they are starving. But the body is using ketone bodies. But if we don't find ketone bodies, I mean, we may think that that person perhaps is not making a hunger strike. Perhaps eating something. And that's one of the things that we double check. Uh, Also people with diabetes they may have ketone bodies in the urine, in the blood and in the urine also and we can detect that as well. And that's just a diagram of what we just described. Uh, during fasting conditions, we see up here there's less insulin and more glucagon released, and in the liver, this is what happens: the glucose is released from the glycogen, but the intermediate glucose phosphate can also be coming from pyruvic acid, and that pyruvic acid, if you remember comes from amino acids, from fatty acids, acetyl-CoA, and may end up in ketone bodies. So all these may be used as sources of energy, glucose, fatty acids, and even ketone bodies. And this is to compare what happens with the insulin and the glucagon in the two states that we just described an absorption of meals, absorptive state, post absorptive state or fasting, high glucose here, low glucose here, and what happens with the insulin and glucose levels in both situations, and what are the consequences of this? What are the levels of glucose, amino acids, and fatty acids in both our conditions? During feeding and during fasting conditions. But some words about diabetes, diabetes and hypoglycemia. Diabetes is well recognized as a disease that is characterized by a chronic high levels of glucose in the blood. And the main mechanism is inadequate secretion or action of the insulin. Now, there are problems with diabetes because a chronic, this chronic condition will have complications in three main organs, kidneys, nervous system, which is seen as increased risk for stroke or damage to the eyes, to the retina of the eyes, And heart, there's an increased risk for heart disease in people with diabetes. So three main organs, kidneys, nervous system, and heart, are the complications of chronic conditions of long time with diabetes. Diabetes is divided in types, type one and type two. The type one, also known as insulin dependent because the only treatment is to give insulin. Juvenile type, because it usually starts very early in life. It can be during childhood or later in adolescence. And this is characterized because the beta cells that make insulin are not present, they are destroyed. So there are theories that show that in some cases this is an autoimmune disease. There are antibodies that destroy the beta cells of the pancreas, and there are different conditions, autoimmune conditions, associated with diabetes type 1, and that may be the reason why it starts so early, and then all of the cells are destroyed, insulin is required as treatment, because they don't produce insulin at all, zero insulin in, the, in their bodies. And this chart explains all the consequences of type 1 diabetes. If there is in- insulin deficiency, that will lead to all these problems or conditions or states. Increased glycogenolysis, because um, there's more blood or glucose required. Increased hepatic gluconeogenesis. Increased ketogenesis. Increased lipolysis. And one of the main things about the insulin deficiency to understand how this works is insulin is needed to get the glucose into the cells. So it's like the key that opens the doors for glucose entry into the cells. If there is not that key insulin to open the doors, the glucose will not get the glu. I mean, the, the, the cells will not get the glucose. And the cells, they don't know if there's no insulin. They, they, they just feel that the doors are closed. There's no glucose available. And so they switch to fatty acids utilization. And it's like the cells, feel that there's no glucose, but there's a lot of glucose in the blood. It's just that they cannot get it. And that's why, as a reaction, as a reaction, we have mechanisms that will lead to use of fatty uh, acids. that's what we have lipolysis, ketogenesis. It's like the person was starving. There's no glucose in the cells, although there's a lot of glucose in the blood, but it cannot be used. There's no insulin to make it enter into the cells. And that will result in hyperglycemia and hyperketonemia because increased number of ketone bodies. That will lead to the symptoms here, osmotic diuresis, dehydration, volume depletion, and even hypotension because of excessive loss of water and fluids, as well as metabolic acidosis, which is due to... The increased amount of ketone bodies which are acidic. Now, in type 2 diabetes, it's a little different because it's known as insulin independent, mature onset, and by the way, is the most common type. So people with diabetes type 2, they actually produce insulin. They produce some insulin, depending on each case. But it's not um, insulin-dependent. It's insulin-independent, meaning that people with diabetes type 2, they can be treated with other measures, other medications, uh, and no insulin. They don't need to receive insulin. And one of the main mechanisms is that there is a low sensitivity to insulin. So the target cells, they have low sensitivity to insulin, known as insulin resistance. So they cannot get the glucose very well. The insulin doesn't have much effect on those cells. I mean, get the glucose inside, but not in the same amount. Still get the glucose inside the cell, but not much. Those cells need more insulin to get the glucose that they need. And that means that there is an excess of glucose in the blood. That's what we say insulin resistance. Now, sometimes that is related with obese or obesity. Many times I would say because of this reason. Someone is obese, there's a lot of tissue, adipose tissue. Therefore, there's a lot of cells. And all those cells need glucose to survive. So it makes sense that more insulin is required for those cells. Now, the pancreas has a number of cells, of pancreatic cells, to produce insulin. But if it's challenged with many cells, especially adipose tissue, the pancreas will need to produce more insulin. And so that is like an insulin resistance because the pancreas has been challenged to make more insulin to supply all that amount of cells on the adipose tissue. And that's one of the reasons why long-term people with obesity will develop diabetes type 2 because the pancreas has been challenged too much. And the insulin that the pancreas make is not enough to supply all these cells. And it's not enough to get glucose into those cells. And the glucose in the blood will start getting higher. And the other thing is that some people with diabetes type 2 and obesity, they lose weight, no more diabetes. Because there's no more cells. There's no excess of cells now. Now the pancreas is not challenged anymore. And everything goes back to normal. But if... Too much time goes between the moment of the challenge, then the pancreas will start suffering, and some of the cells will not be able to make enough amount of insulin, and even after the person loses weight, some deficiency of insulin will remain, and these people will stay with diabetes type 2 afterwards. That is the danger of obesity, and that's why all the efforts to stop this, especially... Um, children obesity because this happens very early in life when they get adults and they lose weight some of them may remain with diabetes type 2 and there's a linear relationship obesity and diabetes type 2 now what we call insulin sensitivity is something that it's very variable person to person situation to situation exercise exercise is one of the things that makes the skeletal muscle more sensitive to insulin, so meaning that it will get more glucose more effectively. It will utilize it more efficiently. That's why exercise is a very good thing for um, prevention of diabetes and at the same time, prevention of obesity. And as I mentioned, an obese person must secrete more insulin to get the same effects as an average weight person. And all that will lead to First, glucose intolerance, and then later may turn into diabetes type 2. There are ways to detect this, and one of the things is called glucose tolerance test, which will detect people that are at risk of developing diabetes type 2. People, perhaps someone with overweight and it's not having high levels of glucose, and nobody notices that that person has diabetes, and that is very common. And people go to see um, the doctors and get lab tests, and they are overweight. We get a lab glucose, I mean, we get a glucose level, uh, fasting glucose levels, and it's normal. So we say, oh, everything is fine. But if we perform the glucose tolerance test, we can say, we can see that this is abnormal. So that means that they may be in the way of challenging the pancreas too much. How this is performed? Well, people are given a solution of glucose, and uh, glucose is tested in the blood at different times. During um, you know, the first 30 minutes, one hour, two hours, and three hours. Normally what happens, as we see here in this picture, is line from normal levels after the meal, it will go high, but then it will return to normal levels. This called pre diabetic is one that gets very high and goes back, but always at a higher level than the normal person. Now the other two lines show people with diabetes which, of course, they show abnormal Abnormal curves. And with this test, we can get to know and find out if a person has a risk for developing diabetes type 2 in the next years. So diabetes type 2, what happens is the skeletal muscles and liver cells are not taking glucose. the liver is not inhibited from releasing glucose. It's still releasing glucose because the glucagon is, is higher. As if there's less insulin, the glu- glucagon will increase and will release glucose from the liver. And the beta cells will start working harder. They are challenged and trying to compensate this low sensitivity. And at some point, they will start failing. They will start failing and... Um, Another thing we see in people with diabetes, uh, type two diabetes, is that they start, like, today, and we tell them to lose weight, to lose weight, because that's going to help. But they don't lose weight. Instead, they, uh, they just rely on the medications that we give. There are medications to give for diabetes type two that control the glucose levels. But after five years. The glucose levels may be maintained by the by the medications, but this is they didn't lose weight. But the challenge to the pancreas is still there. And that is not forever. I mean the pancreas will keep losing beta cells. And after five years or ten years, some people with diabetes type two will turn insulin dependent. They will require insulin as treatment. Because they are not actually following very well. And there are some information here. People with BMI higher than 30 has a five times the chance of developing diabetes. And what I was saying, the type 2 diabetics reduce the severity of disease by losing weight. That's one of the pillars of the treatment in the treatment of diabetes uh, type 2. And the reason why complication of diabetes, of the type 2 diabetes, leads to blindness, damaged blood vessels, tissue damage. We see sometimes problems of the blood vessels in the lower limbs leading to gangrene sometimes, lack of circulation, and problems of the kidney. It's because this amount, this uh, exaggerated amount of glucose in the blood all the time, will start damaging the blood vessels will actually damage the basement membrane under the endothelium of the blood vessels and making all these problems everywhere. The blood vessels everywhere, kidney, retina, eyes, heart, Then many molecules, they will start attaching the excess of glucose, so this basement membrane under the epithelium, the endothelium of the blood vessels will actually bind molecules of glucose. That's called glycosylation, and that will damage this basement membrane. Now this glycosylation is also used, uh, this principle is used as a marker. There's a test called glycosylated hemoglobin test, or A1C hemoglobin A1c. This measures the blood glucose levels over several months. And it's actually the the most accurate index to see if a patient is maintaining the levels of glucose and is following the treatment uh, properly. Because sometimes, on uh, diabetics, they start making some tricks since... They can measure the glucose with a finger stick and the meter every morning, and that's actually what is done when they come to see the doctors. Um, sometimes they come, they come, and they, they take good care in the previous three to five days, previous to the appointment, so on the day of the appointment, when they take the glucose, it's perfectly normal. And we we'll say, okay, good, good thing, good job. But just to make sure, let's make a hemoglobin A1C. And it comes up high. See what happens. Well, that person is actually just taking care of the diabetes just one week before the appointment. And the rest of the time it's just eating chocolate cake and having all the foods they need. And since there's no symptoms of diabetes, usually, but they, they don't get the importance of this sometimes. And if we find it high, then we know, well, this is not being good. You need to change this treatment. Or perhaps you're not following the diet or not losing weight. Or, and it's a very good index of uh, uh, to see if the person is actually following. And here are some comparisons between these two types of diabetes, juvenile type, uh, type 2, insulin dependent, and insulin independent. As I said, sometimes a uh, type 2 diabetes <coughs> turns into type 1 because of this challenge to the uh, pancreatic cells that damage these cells long-term. Well, I've been talking about hyperglycemia and diabetes. Hypoglycemia is the other way around. How can this happen? Well, excessive amount of insulin. Can this happen uh, by excessive insulin made by the pancreatic cells? Yes, there is something called... Insulinoma, which is a tumor of the pancreas, actually, of these cells, and they may excessive amount of insulin. Excessive amount of insulin will lead to hypoglycemia. Although it usually happens in people with diabetes type 1 that receive insulin every day. Um, if they are not using a pump that guarantees a correct administration of this insulin, if they still use a manual... Uh, way, sometimes they messed up the dosages and they give themselves too much of the insulin. They that lead to hypoglycemia. And the symptoms are described here. One of the most prominent is mental confusion. Where we can see weakness, generalized weakness, blurred vision, tremors, excessive hunger. Of course, but. Um, Sometimes loss of consciousness, even seizures because of hypoglycemia. But the first signs of hypoglycemia is excessive hunger, headaches, some tremors, sweating, but then it gets worse into mental confusion, loss of consciousness, seizures. And it's one of those things that are very quick corrected because if we have one of these Cases, you just inject dextrose, which is glucose, and in terms of minutes, it's like replacing the batteries to a person. They just stand out, wake up, and everything goes back to normal. And as mentioned before, there are some important hormones that also regulate the metabolism to mention adrenal gland hormones, thyroxine, thyroid hormone, and growth hormone. So Let's describe quick what are the main actions of these hormones. Adrenal hormones from the medulla and from the cortex. From the medulla, epinephrine, norepinephrine, which follow sympathetic stimulation, which we described already. Sympathetic stimulation may uh, inhibit or um, stimulate the production of insulin, or inhibit the production of insulin and increase uh, glucose levels. Adrenal cortex, mineralocorticoids, aldosterone, glucocorticoids, cortisol, they have an influence in the metabolism. Aldosterone, sodium, potassium absorption, cortisol also regulates the levels of carbohydrates, glucose. Epinephrine and norepinephrine have these effects, stimulate glycogenolysis, meaning release of glucose from the liver, and makes sense, fight or flight uh, reaction, it requires more muscle activity, more energy, more release of glucose. Lipolysis to release more fatty acids by the same reason, more energy is required. The glucocorticoids, the cortisol, is part of the general adaptation syndrome. And as part of this reaction, it promotes lipolysis, ketogenesis, and gluconeogenesis. And the same reason, to increase available energy. Also promotes breakdown of proteins. So there will be more amino acids circulating in case amino acids are needed to be turned into glucose for even more energy. Thyroid hormone, thyroxine. Many cells of the body will have receptors for thyroxine and the effect will be increased production or increased metabolic rate. It's an important component of the adaptive thermogenesis, like when we need to increase the metabolic heat when we're facing cold conditions, like cold weather, and uh, thyroxine is responsible for that and increasing the consumption of energy. We see that in people with hyperthyroidism. People with hyperthyroidism, they're very skinny, they have a the high metabolic rate. If we touch the skin, are really warm. They increase the production of heat and therefore consumption of energy. And growth hormone it's a hormone for growth. It acts on the bones, muscles, but not only because after we completed our growth, we still have growth hormone, we're not growing anymore, but the growth hormone works in the metabolism to regulate the metabolism. It is released following a circadian rhythm. More of it is released during the night, during sleep. And the action of the metabolism will be increase amino acids Decrease in glucose plasma, like what happens after we eat a high-protein, low-carbohydrate meal, or after fasting, it has the same effects. But the main hormones for metabolism are always insulin, glucagon, then the thyroid hormone, cortisol, and then growth hormone. Okay. can you the mic? Insulin, Insulin glucagon. Then we have the thyroxine, thyroid hormone, cortisol, and growth hormone finally. By PTH and calcitonin. Mm-hmm. I tried to look here in his life. I, I couldn't find it. I think that's, that was explained a little bit in, uh, endocrine in the endocrine system. Yeah, in the endocrine system we talk about PTH, calcitonin. Okay, yeah. You can get that from there, yeah. Okay, Kay. any more questions about this one? If not, we'll switch to the next chapter. So here we're going to talk about reproductive system. And to start with this one, we have to mention some things about reproduction, sexual reproduction, which is the one that happens in the human species, meaning that two gametes are needed, egg or ovum and sperm. Now, in terms of chromosomes, human contains 46 chromosomes arranged in 23 pairs, and they come from the fusion of these two gametes, egg plus sperm, as part of the sex of reproduction, that, during the fertilization process, give place to a zygote, containing 46 chromosomes. They can be expressed as 23 <clears throat> pairs because they come from the fusion of these of the chromosomes of both gametes. And then, after a the process of development, the zygote will turn and develop into an embryo and then a fetus, and then will, uh, after birth, we'll be calling the newborn in all the stages of life. A karyotype study is shown here, which is the study by which we analyze the chromosomes, and we actually get cells in a determined stage of mitosis or cell division. So we are able to pair each chromosome. As you see here, the pair number one contains two exact same type of chromosomes. One of them came from mother the other came from father, in the same way for all the chromosomes. 23 pairs that we have here from one to 22, and the pair 23 may be XX if it's a female, or XY if it's a male. The XX, these two are similar, but in XY, the Y chromosome is smaller than the X chromosome. So this difference will determine if it's gonna be a female or a male. Now, going back to development, to have all this in the context of uh, uh, the sexual reproduction, after fertilization, the gonads, which is the name for ovary or testis, they are very identical. But actually, if we go back to the six, uh, to the week six of development, and take a look at these cells that will give place to the gonads, ovaries or testes, they look exactly the same. But at some point, there is a signal that will determine if those cells are developing into ovary or testes. This is determined by the TDF, testis Determining Factor, and that is a protein that is expressed or coded by a gene, gene containing the Y chromosome. That segment or gene is called the SRY gene. So we can see this in this graph. If we see only the six chromosomes here highlighted, We may have these two chances. The ovum is always will have an X, but the sperm may be of two types. Since the male has this uh, chromosome arrangement of XY, the sperm may be some of them X and some of them Y. So if a Y sperm mixes or fuses with an ovum which is X, then we have an XY which is a male. But if we have an ovum which is always X and sperm with the chromosome X, then we have a female here. Now, this, in either case, during the development, the cells under microscopy, they will look like in different gonads. They look exactly the same. But if there is a Y chromosome, there's TDF, and this TDF will make these cells turn into testes there is no TDF, there is no Y chromosome, then these gonads will turn into ovaries, which will have completely different development. And so we end up with gonads, which can be testes or ovaries. Testes and ovaries, each gonad, will have two functions. Production of gametes, that's where the sperm and eggs are made, and second, production of hormones. And they are part of endocrine system. They are target glands. They are glands because they make hormones, they produce hormones. And the target for hormones coming from the hypothalamus and pituitary gland. We mentioned this before in the endocrine system, the axis, hypothalamus, uh, pituitary gland, and the target organ or target gland, in this case is the gonad. And the hormones made by the pituitary gland that stimulate the gonads are FSH and LH. They are made in males and females. FSH and LH will exert some stimulation in ovaries and testes and will stimulate spermatogenesis or oogenesis which means production of sperm or production of eggs it will stimulate these gonads to produce hormones and it will help to maintain these gonads this chart look familiar, we use this chart a lot in the endocrine system to show all this relationship with the axis, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, and gonads in this case. How this works with the hypothalamus, in this case, will make PNRH, gonadotropic releasing hormone, that will stimulate the anterior pituitary gland cells to make FSH and L H. These two are called gonadotropics. So they will stimulate the gonads for production of gametes and production of sex steroids hormones. These sex steroids will exert negative feedback on the pituitary gland and hypothalamus. And there's another compound here called inhibin that will also exert negative feedback on the anterior pituitary gland. It's the same axis that we studied before, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, gonads. We'll go back to this chart when we describe the stimulation and specifically mechanisms that will control this uh, function of both gonads. So let's start with the male reproductive system where we will have going a little bit to the anatomy of the testicles or testes, we can describe two parts, two compartments. One compartment determined by the seminiferous tubules. This is the place where spermatogenesis will occur. And the second compartment will be called interstitial tissue, which is the tissue that surrounds the seminiferous tubules. That's why it's called interstitial. Well, the seminiferous tubules, the walls of the seminiferous tubules will contain these cells known as Sertoli cells, and all the group of cells that will give place to the sperm. FSH, FSH will stimulate Sertoli cells. it will stimulate all the other cells that will give place to the sperm and in the second compartment interstitial tissues we find other type of cell called Leydig cells which are the ones that make the sex hormone testosterone these cells will be stimulated by lh lh stimulates Leydig cells LADIC cells make testosterone. And this testosterone is released to the circulation. And to remember the structure of the testes, sagittal section, the longitudinal section will show and inside, all these small seminiferous tubules are arranged in different areas determined by fiber tribes coming from the capsule, external membrane. And all these tubules will connect to a network of tubules ending up in the epididymis and finally to the vas deferens running in the spermatic cord. But if we get one of these seminiferous tubules, we will see something like this. If we make a cross-section to one of the tubules, there is a lumen, there is a wall with the basement membrane, and right next to the basement membrane, we have these cells called germinal epithelial cells. All these cells are going to meiosis, and will give place to the sperm cells that we see. Where is the interstitial lathic cells in between the seminiferous tubules, All these spaces contain the lathic cells. So, in the specific case of the testes, this axis work in this way. Hypothalamus makes GNRH. The GNRH stimulates the anterior pituitary gland to make FSH and LH. Both go and stimulate the testes, but the two different compartments: FSH, seminiferous tubules, LH, the interstitial Leydig cells. How the negative feedback works? These Leydig cells make testosterone. This testosterone will exert negative feedback on the pituitary gland and hypothalamus. And on this side, the seminiferous tubules will make inhibit this inhibitor is going to exert negative feedback on the anterior between gland. That's how this axis works for the case of the testis. Now, more about spermatogenesis. Spermatogenesis is the process by which the sperm cells are made a microphonograph of the seminiferous tubules, and if we get one segment, a piece of the wall, then we'll see this. This big cell, it looks like an amoeba with a nucleus here, this is the Sertoli cell. And the Sertoli cell is actually supporting all these germinal cells. The cells that are closer to the wall, closer to the basement membrane, are called spermatogonia. Spermatogonia, you see here, they are the ones closer to the basement membrane. Now you see them, all of them are surrounded by these Sertoli cells. These Sertoli cells may provide support, nutrition. In the process of meiosis, this Spermatogonia will turn into primary Spermatocyte, and then to secondary Spermatocyte, the spermatid, and then will turn into a Sperm cell and be released. To the lumen of the tubule. Now that's that is just a diagram showing that, but here we see in terms of numbers how this happens. We have one spermatogonia here. And this spermatogonia, when the time comes, and that starts at puberty, adolescence, when all the machinery of hormones starts, and FSH, LH. Well, this spermatogonia will enter into mitosis. and will divide into two daughter cells. One of the daughter cells will remain as a spermatogonia and the other daughter cell will get into meiosis. This is the reason why the testicles will keep producing sperm for a lifetime because every single spermatogonia that is in the testicle, when it goes into cell reproduction, first we'll get into mitosis, we'll double up, we'll duplicate. One of them will remain a spermatogonium. the other daughter cell will enter into meiosis and we'll go through all this process. We'll turn it into primary spermatocyte, this one will turn into two secondary spermatocytes. these two, in turn, they will turn into four spermatids that will turn into four sperm cells. So, for, from one spermatogonia, we'll end up with, with four sperm cells and a replacement spermatogonia. And the layers inside are showing the number of chromosomes. The spermatogonia is diploid, meaning 46 chromosomes or 23 pairs. But at this point, between the primary and secondary, there's a split of the pairs. And the spermatocytes secondary spermatids, and the sperm cells will have only 23 chromosomes each. That is the process of meiosis. And the sperm cell structure is shown here. All the head, well actually there is the head, Main piece, tail, finally the end piece of the tail. All the nucleus, all the DNA, all the chromosomes are compacted in the head. Barely, just barely amount of cytoplasm here around. In the mid piece, you see something like spiral thing. Over here, this is plenty of mitochondria. <coughs> plenty of mitochondria. The tail contains microtubules specialized for movement. This is the only cell in the body that has a flagellum, tail, that allows movement. And on the head, you see something like a helmet. Well, that's a specialized structure of the cell membrane known as acrosome. This helmet contains spe- specific enzymes. Specific enzymes that will be released When the sperm beats the egg, as you see here, the head actually hits the egg, and enzymes are released, and those enzymes will digest certain areas that are surrounding the egg, so it will make it easier for them to get inside. Spermatogenesis spermatogenesis is controlled by... uh, hormones. As mentioned, the hormones here are testosterone made by the Leydig cells. Testosterone is needed for spermatogenesis. And if there is testosterone, that means that LH is present to stimulate the Leydig cells to make testosterone. How the FSH works? The FSH also stimulates spermatogenesis, but by working on the Sertoli cell. The Sertoli cell is stimulated by FSH. This Sertoli cell will make this ABP, which makes the testosterone be concentrated there and optimizing this process of of, uh, spermatogenesis. So that's very important. The Sertoli cell is very important there. It makes the testosterone available so it will stimulate the spermatogenesis. Other parts of the male reproductive system, this is a classical sagittal section to see the testicles in the scrotum, epididymis, followed by the ductus or vas deferens in the spermatic cord that enters into the pelvic cavity, gets behind the urinary bladder, and it will connect to the seminal vesicles these two will join in a common duct called ejaculatory duct that will drain to the urethra. And in the middle, or surrounded the urethra, will have the prostate gland. So there are more glands here, the seminal vesicle and prostate gland, that are part of the male reproductive system. Seminal vesicle and prostate gland they make secretions, fluids that will add to the sperm cell and form the semen. Seminal fluid contains fructose, basically, and that's coming from the seminal vesicle. Fructose, it provides energy for the sperm. You need a lot of energy for movement. And the prostate fluid coming from the prostate gland contains citric acid, calcium, coagulation proteins. and all these fluids, as part of the semen, have the purpose of serving as a vehicle for the sperm and at the same time help for nutrition and support during the time that they' reach the egg. So when the seminal fluid mixes with the prostate fluid and the sperm, we're talking about this happening in the ejaculatory duct and the urethra. And for the semen, the semen to get into or reach the egg, it has to go through the penile urethra that during erection, the urethra is running in the corpus spongiosum, and under a stimulation of parasympathetic nerve, this erection allows the semen to get into the reproductive tract, or the female reproductive tract. This erectile tissue, corpus spongiosum and corpora cavernosa, we see here a transverse section showing the corpus spongiosum and the urethra in the middle of the corpus spongiosum. The other two are the corpora cavernosa, which are surrounded by a thick membrane of connective tissue. This erectile tissue has one characteristic. It allows the blood to come in faster and more amount than the blood that leaves. And therefore there's an accumulation, temporary accumulation of blood that will make that will be the basis of the erection and under parasympathetic stimulation. During this process, the semen moves to to the urethra, and the ejaculation is under sympathetic nervous system control. Ejaculation, provoked by contraction of a smooth muscle in the tubules, seminal vesicle, prostate, and muscles at the base of the penis, will make this happen. So this table, we have the composition of the semen, which sometimes are important to analyze, like in cases of infertility, got the volume may be very variable, but the sperm count shouldn't be less than 40 million per milliliter. <coughs> if it's lower than that, and there are specific limits, then we can think about problem infertility, like... We got less than 20 million, that's called oligospermia, And that is considered low fertility. That may be caused by different conditions, some drugs, anabolic steroids, increased heat of the, the environment. And also another thing that is analyzed in the semen analysis is how well this sperm moves after one hour, after three hours, how many leukocytes there are in cases of infection of any type, the pH, and the fructose concentration. So all these are important in some cases of infertility where this has to be analyzed to the very detail, uh, looking for an explanation. The most common case is um, oligospermia, as, as we described before. Any question, any comment at this point? I think we can have a break at this point, a minute.